Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we are doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Alicia Garza. And I'm Ai-jen Poo. And we're back for season two of Sunstorm. Oh, I have missed doing this with you. And I've missed all of our Sunstorm fam. And I'm so excited to be back. I am so pumped. This is a really wild time to be alive, my friends. We have a global pandemic on our hands. We have a rebellion unfolding across the globe. We are facing a presidential election and we're all trying to figure out how to do the work we need to do, how to do it well, and how to win. So that's what this season of Sunstorm is all about. It is all about winning all the time. And we're going to be talking about what that looks like in terms of our roles. We're going to be talking about finding our lane because we all have one and rolling up our sleeves and getting in there is how we're going to move the world forward. Our next guest is definitely moving the world forward. One soccer championship, one equal pay fight, one talk show at a time, all with one give no fucks, take no prisoners attitude. Megan Rapino. Thank you. That's quite the intro. I am bringing you guys everywhere with me. <laughs> I'd let you go first. <laughs> so look, we're in the middle of all kinds of crises. I mean, I don't think that 2020 could have been any weirder and it just continues to get more weird. So let's just talk pandemic really quick. I mean, how have you been faring? What's been going on? How are you braving quarantine, pandemic, physical distancing and all the things. I was actually in a soccer tournament when it kind of started kicking off. Sue, uh, my girlfriend, we live in Seattle. So she was actually in Seattle when the Kirkland nursing home facility sort of breakout happened. So she was kind of like in it right from the beginning, which actually was a blessing really, because it was very real, very soon. We spent most of quarantine on the East Coast in Connecticut. By the time we got back there, I think it was March ninth or 10th. So it was basically day before, two days before the shutdown. We're very lucky. We had places to stay and our jobs kind of got shut down, but we were still able to do a lot. So we've never spent that much time together. Um, we still like each other. So that's a, that's a positive <laughs> Great out of it. But yeah, just from the beginning, we, we sort of took the attitude of like, this is obviously happening. It's very serious. And we pretty much stayed in quarantine until we got to the WNBA bubble where we are now in Florida, but we've, we've pretty much been, been staying in. I don't, I don't want to get it. I don't want to spread it. I don't want to be part of that problem. And we're lucky enough to be able to stay home and shelter in place. So we're doing that. That's a real thing. And I always say Miss Rona is playing no games with any of us. <laughs> she ain't playing no games. No games <laughs> She's all. like, you, 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 and you. <laughs> I got you. Exactly. She's like, oh, you tried it? Let me finish it. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. But you've also had just a lot going on, even as you've been sheltering in place with new shows on Quibi and HBO and Instagram series and a book coming out this fall. How are you keeping up with it all? Uh, yeah, I mean, thank God for the internet. Um, I'm not sure. I would have just been sheltering in place and staring at the wall. And yeah, lucky in that sense, we were able to do all kinds of things, especially in the beginning of the pandemic prior to George Floyd, Maude Arbery, and 
the protests. It was like, how can we participate in this? So it was like, yes, some serious conversations. I had a conversation with AOC about the first stimulus package, you know, in different conversations. Then part of it was like, can we bring some lightness? People are really struggling and it's hard. This is such an immediate change. And not just put pause button, but like a stop button, you know, on society, really. So trying to sort of do different things to keep ourselves kind of busy and bring some some lightness and some fun to people. 2020 has been insane. And there's been, you know, a million things going on. And so just trying to to roll with it and, and continue to you know, make some change if we can. Well, most recently, I saw you on the DNC interviewing a circle of essential workers. And it was so, mm-hmm. so powerful. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, something I've actually just sort of randomly gotten into um, since quarantine. I feel like I have all of these questions for people. That's why I had that conversation with AOC. I had a conversation with W. Kamau Bell. Um, I had a conversation with Joe Biden. Like, I'm just a normal, you know, citizen who has you know, this incredible platform. And so if I have these questions, I know that everyone else does as well, or a lot of people. And so that sort of sparked it. And, you know, I got this amazing opportunity to not only be a part of the DNC, but to to have, you know, a conversation, just listening to their stories and what they've been through, you know, what they think we should be doing, what they think we could be doing differently, you know, how all of these decisions from the federal government, the Trump administration, the Republicans, what are the real life effects of that? You know, we sort of hear about it, but like in the hospital rooms, what does it mean when we can't get our supply chains together and we don't have masks and we don't have PPE and all of those things? So it was really um, an incredible opportunity to participate in, in the DNC and just be able to talk with just national heroes in my opinion. Absolutely. Speaking of your story, you know, we were doing, of course, we were doing some research on you. (laughs) And I saw that we have a number of different things in common. One, uh, you grew up in Redding, California. I have family there. Really? Represent. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. North State. Longer story, but we'll talk about it. (laughs) But, you know, one of the things that has really moved me actually over the last year or so is how public you've been about your story. And in particular, the story of your brother, right, who has Mm -hmm. um, been dealing with the criminal system for a few years now. And you've talked a lot about how that's inspired you and inspired your activism. And so I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that you can share some of that story. We have a whole thing here at Sunstorm about finding your lane, right? And Mm -hmm. you have a lane as being an athlete, an entertainer, and an activist. And so I'm hoping you can round that out for our Sunstorm listeners. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I grew up in Redding, California. It's uh, a relatively small town hit very hard by drugs, you know, in the mid 90s and and 2000s, um, certainly hit hard by the financial crisis and collapse in, in 2008. My brother, Brian was, I think, 15. So I was 10, you know, the first time that he you know, had his sort of first interaction with with law enforcement, the criminal justice system, he got caught with drugs at school. And being a 10 year old, like, I was just like, first of all, what are you doing doing drugs? Right. And what are you doing bringing them to school? And, you know, not really understanding anything about the criminal justice system, just knowing that this was a bad thing, he got arrested, and unfortunately, still kind of caught up in, you know, drug use. And, and really, he, he needed drug rehab and, and therapy and resources for that. He didn't need the criminal justice system. And just 
as I've gotten older and, you know, watched his journey and, and been a part of his journey through all this and really understanding the major flaws of the criminal justice system. I mean, he's been in, you know, Pelican Bay and Susanville and some of like the, you know, the worst prisons in California and to see what that's done to him and to see how it just swallows people up. And I'm from the same family that he's from. We had, you know, the same upbringing, same roof, same parents, same love, you know, same attention, same everything. And so just my sort of process of understanding, okay, like drug addicts aren't bad people, you know, just really understanding the problems and deficits in our criminal justice system. And then as I'm getting older, understanding, you know, my brother was swept up in this and the drug laws and all of that. But these laws disproportionately affect, you know, black people and people of color. And, you know, he's, he's still a drug addict. And so after all of these years, it's been almost 20 years that he's been in this system. It's done absolutely nothing to address the problem of why he keeps going into prison. And so something is amiss here. And so I think all of those have helped to inform me of the problems and the trappings of the criminal justice system. And then I learned about racism and pay equity and, you know, sexism and homophobia and all of these things. And so I feel like that's really where my activism kind of converges. You know, I'm a soccer player that play on a very popular team, a team that gets to represent America all the time, not only domestically, but abroad. And so we have this platform. And so I just felt like we look to our athletes as role models all the time. It's like, you know, be good for the kids and say the right thing for the kids and act the way you're supposed to act for the kids or act the way we want you to act for the kids. So I was like, oh, well, I'm going to teach the kids about activism and yeah. teach the kids about racism and teach the kids about, <laughs> you know, homophobia and pay right. equity and, and all of it. If this is the platform that I have been given and that has been, you know, partially built by me, but built by so many other people, then this is my responsibility. This is my lane. I have this microphone. I'm able to be in front of the media or to, you know, be at the Olympics or be at the World Cup. And so I just felt like this was the best effective way I could use and leverage the popularity that I have to talk about things that have affected me personally, if we're talking about my brother, or things that I have just seen in other people and I can see in our society and just say, I believe them and maybe they don't have the voice that I have. And so I can help to be that voice for people. That's so, so, so powerful. powerful. <laughs> so powerful. Jinx. Jinx. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I've heard in other interviews where you talk about how you started to realize the power of your platform and the power that you have in 2016, 2017. Was there something that happened in that time that really catalyzed that realization? As I got a little bit older on the team after having come out, seeing the positive impact of that right before the Olympics and and then being able to just participate in the Olympics as, you know, my full self, I, I found that really powerful for me. You know, fast forward from 2012 to 2014, we have the horrific murder of Mike Brown. And so, you know, obviously, uh, Alicia, I, I feel like I owe so much to you um, and, and Opal and, and Patrice. You guys sparked a revolution, really. And so learning about that, learning about you know, the, the politics and the policing just in that small town of Ferguson, educating myself on that. Fast forward into, you know, the summer of 16. It's just, I mean, I don't even know what, what words to put on that just incredibly violent and, 
and just sad and, and just kind of horrifying in so many ways. I feel like that kind of sparked me. You know, the WNBA players were, were talking out in Minnesota Lynx, I think were, were some of the first players to talk about that. Maya Moore and their coach Cheryl Reeve and Rebecca Brunson and, you know, Sylvia Fowles, they were all talking about it, you know, speaking up about it. We have Colin Kaepernick, obviously very shortly after that. Yep. And I think at that point, it was just like, I can't not. Like, I see this happening. I'm watching SportsCenter. I'm watching the way he's speaking about it. And then I'm watching the way everyone is speaking about him speaking yeah. about it. And that doesn't match up mm-hmm. at all. We're not talking about the flag. We're not talking about disrespecting the military. He's obviously sitting there very peacefully. Um, and we're talking about, you know, black and brown people being brutalized and terrorized in their own communities. And obviously, if you know anything about this country, we're founded on shadow slavery. So it's like not really far off. It's not a big surprise that this is kind of, you know, by another name has progressed into sort of where we are. And I just feel like it, it became this moment where I was like, I can't not say, say any of them. I'm going to talk about all this other stuff. And just in general, as a citizen of this country, I just feel like, you know, we have, you know, a huge portion of our population who's treated differently, brutalized and over-policed and, you know, mass incarcerated and forced into poverty. And, and, uh, and it just was, I just, as a human being, I just feel like there's no way that, that I feel like I have this platform and we have this, you know, incredible gift of being able to be in front of people and microphones and represent America. And I was like, if I'm going to represent America, I'm going to represent everyone. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I have so many things I want to talk to you about. I know, <laughs> me too. I'm, I'm like, I want to talk seams. about. So look, you are so deeply politicized in this moment and super clear about what your lane is and how to use it. And we hear from people all the time who are just like, I, I, I don't even know where to start. So what's your advice for people who have issues that they deeply care about, like equal pay or racial justice? What advice would you give to folks about how it is they can find their own lane? I think the, the first thing I would say to people is that our whole lives are are political because we we live in a republic. We live in a country. We have a government. And nobody wants to live in just an anarchist, you know, free-for-all. Mm-hmm. So we have this. We have stop signs. We have mm. crosswalks. We have a fire department. We have whatever it is. That's political. And yep. so politics is engaging with you, whether you're engaging with it or not. Mm. And so the more you engage with it, the more the politics will reflect what you need and what you want. And, you know, if you bring that out, obviously what your community wants, what your community needs, what your city needs, what, you know, your state might need, whatever it is. And so the more you have that civic engagement, the more it works for you instead of you constantly feeling like it doesn't work for you. And I think you can get involved and you can do something. Now, some people are very outspoken and you know confident and are comfortable having the microphone in their hand. They should do that. Some people are just not. They would be much better as you know organizing in a different way or yeah. maybe you're a lawyer and you can do pro bono hours or whatever it is. But I, I really do think that there is something for everyone. I think we all have a responsibility to make the world a better place in whatever way we can be most impactful. And so I say like, no, no amount of involvement is too small. If, if you have one hour a month, one hour a year, it's better than not doing anything at all. You know, we're coming up to election that might be making sure you're registered to vote and making your plan to vote. As we know, postal service and mail-in balloting is 
difficult right now and, and trying to be made more difficult. So can you prepare yourself? Can you prepare five other people? Can you prepare your family, your friends, whoever it is? Just those little things, I think, in starting to make civic engagement part of your daily life, part of your daily habit, I think can help. Because if you just look at it like, oh my God, how do I fix the criminal justice system or healthcare, like, whoa, nobody can just <laughs> yeah, right, that right, right, on right. their own. But maybe you start going to meetings and getting involved and, you know, just being involved in that civic process, I think is really important. Yeah. yeah Literally yeah, yeah. the best articulation of how to find your lane in the entire <laughs> season of Sunstorm. I got to give it to you. You get, you get you. trophies That's and medals true. for that one. Megan wins. And speaking of winning, we have a slogan on the show, which is basically that winning is self-care. We are Mm. organizers who like to win. Like that. And clearly you do too. And, you know, we've heard you talk about how important it is for women to fully own and celebrate those wins. How do you define winning and why is it important for us to celebrate our wins? The journey is always really important to me. I mean, obviously you get to the end and you win. And I think being in sports, that's the best thing. You get to hold the trophy and, you know, only one team or one person gets to do that at the end. But but all along the way, you can have little wins. And I think it's really important to celebrate those along the way, celebrate all the times that um, you overcame something or even your failures. You obviously learn from them and and keep going. I think there's this like, I don't even know if it's a misconception, but this thing in society where it's like each individual knows that like we struggle and we mess up all the time. And yet there's this sort of societal standard that like you have to be perfect all the time. And every individual is like, oh, this is whack, but like this is what society is telling us. And so kind of getting rid of that and just really trying to just get better every day, I think is really important. And then for for women, I think we're so often you know, made to try to just shove into this tiny little box. It's like, be confident, not too confident. It's like, (laughs) be great. Don't be better than, you know, them. Stick up for yourself. Well, don't challenge men, you know, and it's just like, it's impossible. You you can never, you can, it's impossible. You can never win. And so I just feel like giving yourself that space and giving your other female friends and, and other people that space to celebrate the things they do well, is just so important. And kind of just like this judo mind trick we need to do with ourselves. Let it all out and let yourself be as big as possible. Megan, honestly, I feel like we just need to be homies because yeah, exactly. this is excellent. Can we please this is excellent. just be homies? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, please, please, please. So bear with me for a second. You know, in the course of preparing for this show, I learned that your family is actually quite conservative. And you've talked a lot about how you've figured out the balance between restoring and keeping your bonds, right? But also Mm -hmm. pushing, right? And it really resonated with me. I have like a progressive side of my family and like a gun-toting Trump side of my family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I actually even had an experience with a family member recently where you know, they were like super down with Black Lives Matter until something happened. And then all of a sudden they had this whole narrative about me and Black Lives Matter being racist against white people, which Mm -hmm. is a much longer conversation. (laughs) There's no such thing as reverse racism. It doesn't fucking work. (laughs) I'm like, mind blown. I have no idea what that means. So listen, 
I know our listeners are also dealing with this experience where there's a point in our lives relatively frequently where we're coming up against family members who we love and deeply care about and deeply love and care about us who actually think very differently about how the world works and why it works that way. And sometimes it's in contrast with what we believe and what we know and what we experience. How do you navigate that? It is hard. <laughs> it really is. My family, I feel like we we do always try to come from a place of love. Uh, we try to let each other, you know, speak and and we, you know, hold each other's views. I mean, sometimes we just get to the point where it's like we we're definitely going to agree to disagree. And I just feel like for me, it's my family. I love them. I will always love them. They will always love me. There is there is that baseline, but it's really difficult. And I'm not going to ever shrink myself or, you know, not say my views and, and they feel the same. We have a pretty outspoken family. And so sometimes it gets heated, but there there are some baseline humanity things where I'm like, your belief is infringing upon my humanity mm-hmm. or someone who you support is infringing on my humanity. Yep. And so almost coming at it from, from that perspective of like, this is me as a human being. This is how it affects me. This is why I feel yep. this way. I mean, we can go into the larger you know, society context of everything, but just like taking that personal stance of like, this is why I believe in and being able to articulate that and being able to talk you know, with people. Because it's like, just because it's a belief that someone has, <laughs> like, it's like, doesn't mean there's not consequences to it. That's like right. some people in, you know, Nazi Germany believe that yeah. what they were doing is right. That doesn't make it Facts. right. And that doesn't mean that you just carte blanche get to just like have this belief when it's harming other people. That's right. I don't know if I really gave people advice, but I, I just feel like being open to the conversations, you know, always coming with facts and giving the human perspective as well. I'm a gay woman in this country. That means something. And my experience is different than yours. And you may not understand the discrimination that I feel, but if, if I'm telling you this, there's either two options. You either believe me or you don't. And if you don't believe me, you think I'm lying. So it's like, do you think I'm lying about my, my experience (laughs) or do you believe me? And maybe that goes against what you believe, but now we can have a conversation about it. That's right. I think that's so important because if there's one thing that we've learned is that there's there's what's factually true, and then there's what's emotionally true. And they're not the same, but both are shaping people's mm-hmm. choices and, and shaping the world around us. And I think what you're saying about coming with both the facts and the human perspective of like, hey, mm-hmm. human being to human being, this is what I'm telling you is my reality, That's is right. actually tapping into that piece of our emotional lives that I think we have to just kind of go there if That's we're going to make any real progress. I also mm-hmm. really want to make sure that I have the chance to talk to you about equal pay because you've been mm. such an amazing leader on this issue. And it's so important to me and Alicia, you know, working with domestic workers in particular, it's like the angle on it, which is that they're also like entire segments of work in our economy that because they're associated with women and women of color specifically are totally devalued as work. Like we can't even Mm -hmm. get people to recognize domestic work as work. They still call it help, right? And it's the same root issue of like Mm -hmm. some people's lives and contributions are valued less in our economy. 
And it shows up as unequal pay. It shows up as devaluing domestic work. It shows up in all these ways. And yeah, so tell us like from the front lines, what's happening with the equal pay movement and where is it going to go next and how do we get involved? We had a summary judgment um, by uh, a judge and basically what he ruled on was essentially over this course of period, the dollar amount for what we made versus the men's team was pretty similar. Um, I think we actually, you know, dollar for dollar made more. We played more games. We won two World Cups. We won virtually every game that we played. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, we we captured, you know, probably, I'm just, you know, sort of spitballing here, but, you know, probably 80 to 90% of the total, yeah. you know, ability in our contract. Um, we, we essentially, you know, performed three times better than, than the men and we just barely out earned them. So it's kind of the idea of like working twice as many hours Mm -hmm. and making the same amount of money. That's right. And he also said that we negotiated our contract and now we're basically saying like, well, it didn't earn us as much money. And so now we're going back on and now we want their contract because our structures are a little bit different, which in reality, we asked for the exact same structure with the exact same compensation. And we got back a line item, every single line item was lower. And so we did ask for the same. It's like they started negotiating in the boardroom, we started negotiating in the parking lot. That's the difference. And so Mm -hmm. no one just goes in and is like, oh, yeah, I'll take this lower contract. Like, that's great. No, Mm -hmm. we knew at the time that this wasn't the same and it wasn't equal. And it was like, we felt we, we either strike or we take it and, you know, try to find some wins in it and continue to go like, you know, women always do basically. And, mm-hmm. and people who are discriminated always do. It's like, we couldn't afford to do that at the time. We couldn't, we couldn't strike at the time. We didn't have, you know, that ability in our membership and it just wasn't the right time. So he ruled on that and basically just said like the equal pay is kind of out the window because you chose your contract and you also made more, even though we just won so much more. Mm-hmm. And then there was a couple other of claims that he left to go to trial. Um, so, you know, stuff about um, the way we, we travel, charter flights, hotels and that. So those are still waiting to be either settled or ruled on. COVID has thrown a big wrench in it because we can't have a trial date and all of that. So that's where that is. Once those separate claims are either settled or go to court, then we can appeal the bulk of the equal pay lawsuit, which is which is all of the financial part, and that'll go to the Ninth Circuit. So Got it. that's kind of where we are now. I mean, I still feel as confident as ever in our case. I know that I know that we were discriminated against. I lived it every single day, and all the numbers shake out exactly that way. It's just now, you know, unfortunately, going to take much longer. And I think the most disappointing part was I felt that the court really, really just dismissed and did not appreciate what discrimination is. Mm -hmm. And so if I could have gotten the same contract that have would have earned me three times more money, I'm not stupid. I would have gone and got that. (laughs) You know, you're left in that position where you're like, am I going to take this job for less money? Because I do need this job. Or am I going to, you know, create a stink and all this. So it's just, it's frustrating, but I still feel great about the lawsuit. And We'll, we'll get there eventually. I mean, here's what's so fascinating about this. What you just talked about in terms of the judge not understanding discrimination is so critical. And obviously, this is a male judge who is delivering yeah. this decision White male judge. Yeah. and being like, yeah, you just 
it's your problem. This is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about intersectionality, right? And Kim Crenshaw really detailed this for us like two decades ago, where she basically Mm -hmm. broke down all of these court cases where people who were bringing lawsuits around discrimination were being denied because the court couldn't understand how you could be experiencing discrimination on a whole bunch of levels. Mm -hmm. What's important for people to understand that are listening is that this is basically true for women's teams, right? This is also happening with the WNBA. And of course, we're seeing these kinds of overlaps, right? Where there's challenges based on race, based on gender. And you've also said, right? Like nobody wants to talk about the fact that there's also a dimension here around sexuality that people aren't actually bringing into the conversation. And it has real world impacts. So can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners who are like, I hear intersectionality being thrown around a lot, but how does that relate to what we're talking about here? So I always think about our team, like if we were a, a business or, or a product or something. And it's like, if, if your business, say we're a startup and you receive you know less funding mm-hmm. and you receive less marketing mm-hmm. and you hire not only less people, but less talented people. Mm-hmm. The team's amazing, but everything else around it, if we're if, if it's a business and we're we're trying to, you know, run a business, yes, we're playing soccer, but we're also running, you know, a, a for-profit business. If yep. all of those things are under-resourced, mm-hmm. obviously one is gonna make more money. One is right. gonna have a better business model and be more profitable. Mm-hmm. And then if you take it even into the context of you know, I've obviously dating Sue and being around the WNBA so much in the last, you know, four years and then coming to this moment with them. It's always kind of been this undertone thing of like, they're black, they're tall, you know, uh, there's a certain percentage of them that are gay. Mm. So then we go out into society and we try, even if you have the best of people around us, if you're trying to sell that product and all the public sees, because all we're told is, Women who are, you know, pretty and white and smaller, like the women's national team, we've actually, uh, standing in stark contrast to the WNBA, a traditionally white, cute, like girl next door, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of business model, people can get more on board with that. But you're trying to sell, you know, a league that is 80% black and however Mm -hmm. much percent gay. And and this is the, you know, the way they look. And so now we have this whole societal thing of like, well, that's not like, that's not what we've been told is cool. And that's not what we've been told is, is pretty or interesting or exceptional Mm -hmm. or beautiful or, Mm -hmm. you know, worth supporting or going to. Mm -hmm. And so then you have that whole like issue plugged into it. And then you also have, I feel like kind of traditionally with the WNBA, they sort of try to push this like feminine narrative. And we all know if you're not authentic, you ain't shit. Like you're not going to sell. That's right. That's not like if you either are who you are, the consumer is very savvy, whether they know it or not. Um, but on, on a broad scale, the consumer super savvy. And so if you're not giving them something that's authentic and something that makes sense and these like really dynamic women and characters and teams and all of that, then it's just, you're just, you know, underselling the league completely. And so I think now with the WNBA, you know, they had an incredible, you know, CBA negotiation and a a re sort of a reset of the relationship with WNBA and the players. And they're really just leaning into who they are, you know, particularly in this moment, they're like, yes, Mm -hmm. we are, you know, black LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. um, beautiful, strong women. And in this moment, I feel like they're really getting 
their due. They're able to stand up and say, yes, you should follow us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you should look to us for guidance. We are, I mean, just watch the games. It's like, you can't watch 10 NBA games and call yourself like a basketball fan and be like, oh, I don't like it. It's just like, not as good. It's just right. like, if you actually watch it and if you it's actually amazing. invest in it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of all of those things. And that's where the intersectionality mm-hmm. for me comes into it is like, you know, if you are, Underrepresenting and under-supporting and under-resourcing. Yep. How are these businesses, you know, supposed to be successful? Yep. Man, I yep. feel like we need Megan explainers on every issue. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we need a whole series. Maybe Quibi could do it. It's like Megan explains yeah. this. Come on, Quibi, get in there. <laughs> um, so one thing Alicia and I noticed is that there's a ton of overlap in the language we use for politics and sports, like winners, losers, playing defense, playing offense, clinching a victory. Mm-hmm. And Alicia and I are constantly saying and asking each other, like, are we doing enough? Are we leaving it all on the field this year? Because this is the year, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that spirit and some of those metaphors actually really help focus us. Do you think that that kind of spirit helps activists or what are some of the kind of overlaps between what athletes think about and use in terms of metaphors or tropes and what activists use and how they kind of come together in ways that are useful or not? I think there's so many parallels, to be honest. And it's it's interesting that you say that because I feel like as an athlete, I'm always hesitant to use any sort of like sports. <laughs> Nothing. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, can I get out of like the sports like <laughs> metaphor, the cliche? It's always like, you know, you go into any locker room, it's like work hard and like all these things. <laughs> but it really is. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, activism, which is a, a never ending fight, yeah. it takes your physical strength. If you're out in the streets, if you're marching, if you're protesting. And so I see all kinds of, you know, lines that can be drawn, you know, particularly, I mean, I just think of, you know, just since George Floyd until now, and now, you know, we're in the streets in Wisconsin and, you know, protesting Jacob Blake and his shooting. And it's just, it seems so overwhelming all the time. But I think if you think of it as like a whole team, not everyone can play all the time. Like you're going to have to take your rest. You're going to have to do your self-care and continue to educate yourself and take your shifts and, and do your things so that you can continue to show up throughout your career and continue to be better and grow and hopefully affect change and, and get people not only motivated and, and out in the streets with you or in activism in whatever way with you, but hopefully in the hearts and minds of, of the majority of people. Dude, so Megan much Rapino for president. Exactly. Megan Rapino exactly. for president. I'm wholly unqualified, but I am certain I am more qualified than what's happening right now. I know that facts. I can defer to other people and have the smart people do the things that they do best. I know I could do that. <laughs> yes, we talk a lot always on Sunstorm about what you were talking about earlier about civic participation. And this is a big election year. And a lot of the women that we work with every day, it's like, it's always been a challenge to vote because they work in low wage jobs where you don't have the day off to vote and you work long, unusual hours and you don't have childcare and you're juggling everything. And, you know, I think for a democracy, it's just not been very democratic. And so there's probably 
a million reasons, um, coupled with all the intense voter suppression and chaos and confusion that's being created in this moment in the halls of power and in the media about the elections. Mm -hmm. So we've really been trying to get the word out of like, it might not be easy, but it is so worth it. In fact, it's all on the line. And Mm -hmm. so how are you talking to people about voting and what's at stake this year and, and why it's so important, especially for women to show up at the polls this year? I mean, I, I just feel like for women in particular, it's like, what's the backbone of this country? Like in, in every sort of way, um, if you talk about, you know, domestic workers or you talk about childcare workers or essential workers or whoever, it's like, it's such a foundation of our country. And those people should be spoken for. Like those women should speak for themselves and they should have a very powerful voice, like you said, in the halls of power. If you want to do something about that, vote. Mm. Because that's that's how we're going to do it. Yes, we need to be in the streets. Yes, we need to be protesting. Yes, we need to be, you know, filling our timelines with the important information and centering black voices and, you know, really, you know, focusing on the horrific racial injustice that has happened throughout our entire country. And the way we're going to get that done is to have someone in office who even cares. And that's a start. So if you want to do something, this is the most important thing that you can do. If you have to choose between protesting and, and, and taking that time or p- picking a time to vote and using that, I would, I would say vote up and down the ballot. I mean, we see how important and how impactful someone like, you know, Ilian Omar has been or mm-hmm. someone like AOC, Cori Bush just mm-hmm. got in, um, Jamal Bowman. Mm-hmm. It's like people are taking note and just normal people are coming into politics and the establishment is freaked out. They're like, we cannot have the average person that's in right. politics. This is fucking up the order. That's but, right. So that, that's what I would say. If you want to get involved, if you want to make a change, if you care about Black Lives Matter, we still have people in cages down at the southern border. If you care about health care, vote. This is the most important thing. And this is the most consequential election, obviously, in my lifetime, but, mm-hmm. you know, potentially in the history of our country. Amen to that. Look, amen, Ashe, all the things. We've got just one more minute left with you. So I want to end it on a hopeful note. There's so much swirling around us. It can be really exhausting for folks. What is giving you hope that is literally like getting you out of bed every morning? I think what keeps me hopeful is is just people and specifically marginalized people out in the streets risking their lives, just still fighting for the soul of this country, really, and fighting for all people. It's not just one group out there just fighting for themselves. I feel like the most marginalized person is out there fighting for every single person that they possibly can. I'm a a very privileged person. I have an incredible platform that allows me to speak you know, to so many people. And it's like, if that person is out there doing what they're doing, the essential workers are out here still in these streets, the frontline workers are are doing everything they can to save people like I can do this. The soul of America is here. It's Mm. just not in power. Mm. And so I feel like if we get the soul of America, which is just everyday people into power and affecting policies that will help us all, we are, you know, the richest country resource wise and money wise, in the world, or at least one of them, like we have the ability to 
take care of our people and we do not have to live this way. I think that there's a better way. And I think that we're, we're close to, to being there, but November is very important. Well, I can Oof. say we 100% have a sunstorm crush on you. Thank you so much for joining us today. People can find you at MPino on all the socials mm-hmm. and, you know, winning championships all around the world, giving us your famous Rapinko. You know, we're, <laughs> we, we're doing all the things. All the things. <laughs> and to all you lovely listeners, write to us, tweet us, tell us about how you are making your way through the storm. Follow us at Sunstorm Pod on social media. Tweet us at Ijin Poo and Alicia Garza. Hashtag Sunstorm. Keep your mask on and stay safe. And don't forget, triple check your voter registration status. We cannot wait to hear from you. Until next week. Let's Bye. do it. Bye. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, and Christina Mevzapgar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. Okay. Why do you do this Mia Santa Maria? I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah!